Welcome everyone to the fifth episode of the Real Emergency Vodcast. We are excited to have you join us for this really important discussion of the EMS role in treating a patient at the end of life. A bit about our vodcast, Real Emergency is produced in partnership with Hand Heavy, Real DX, and 410 Medical, and it is powered by Prodigy EMS. I am Hillary Gates, Director of Educational Strategy for Prodigy EMS. All episodes will be available to you for CAPSI credit on prodigyems.com. And for those of you watching live today and you want to earn one hour of free CE, you'll have a QR code at the end of the session that you can scan and earn your continuing ed. Be sure to check us out on our fav- on your favorite podcast platform or on the Real Emergency YouTube channel. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Let me briefly introduce our three experts. David Spiro is a pediatric emergency physician and professor at the University of Arkansas Medical System. He felt so strongly about medical education that he found a way to get videos to the market of real live patient cases, and he founded RealDX, which you'll see here. Peter Antevi is a pediatric emergency medicine physician, EMS physician, and the founder of Pediatric Emergency Standards, and he is the inventor of the Hantevi system. He serves as the medical director for numerous agencies in Florida and is the lead pediatric EMS specialist for the highly influential Eagles. Mark Peel is a pediatric intensivist at WakeMed in Raleigh, North Carolina, and he's a medical director with WakeMed Mobile Critical Care. Dr. Peel is also founder and chief medical officer of 410 Medical Innovation, a company focused on improving resuscitation in shock and sepsis. Today, we have two special guests who are joining us as experts in our topic, advanced care planning, end-of-life issues, and medical ethics. First, we have Dr. Elizabeth Claiborne, who is a faculty member at the University of Maryland School of Medicine, Department of Emergency Medicine, with an academic focus on ethics, health policy, end-of-life care, and innovation and entrepreneurship. Very fitting. She earned her undergraduate degree at Duke University in medical ethics and religion and went to medical school at Case Western Reserve, where she completed a dual MD-MA bioethics degree. She's also completed an EM residency at George Washington University Hospital, and she is yet another entrepreneur who has launched her own company called Medical, excuse me, called Emergency Medical Innovation, LLC. We also have with us today Howard Capone. He is a full-time paramedic firefighter in Northern Virginia, and he is the EMS advisor to National Pulsed, which is a portable medical order that you'll hear about today. He has been working on EMS and hospice program development and partnership strategies since 2015 and on end-of-life care strategies for EMS providers since 2012. Some tips for watching today, if you haven't joined us before, we want you to weigh in. We want to hear from you. The panelists will ask for your your feedback, so feel free to use your mic to chime in. You can also write questions to us in the chat, and we may call on you to share. On to the case now. You're going to be watching EMS interact with a patient and his wife as they navigate the complicated, sometimes fraught world of -of end-of-life orders. I'm sure most of us have experienced calls like this in our careers, and we do want to take the time like today to talk about them. They are emotionally heavy, they are stressful, and unfortunately, the pandemic has made many of these cases even worse. Let's get started. David, take it away. Thanks, Hillary. I just wanna say a couple things. One is I'm honored to be here with, with Peter, Mark, with our special guests. Uh, Liz and Howard, uh, this is going to be a, a, a very intense 
uh, session, but very, very much needed uh, to talk about. Uh, so uh, I also want to mention that with all of the real DX cases, um, the patients and or their families consent to uh, being seen. So uh, it is challenging in the EMS environment. This case was particularly challenging, and I'll get into that in a second, but uh, we believe in informed consent uh, with, with the RealDX platform. So just like research, all of our uh, patients and the subjects are willing to give up themselves to, um, for us all to learn. So I, I just wanna take a shout out to this family that allow, is allowing us to learn from this uh, experience. A shout out to the paramedics who cared for this particular patient. Uh, I formerly was a paramedic. I'm, I'm always honored to work with paramedics. I still work clinically as does Peter and, and Mark. Uh, and it's an incredible honor to be here today. Um, Peter, do you wanna give any quick opening salvos while I um, switch over to the video? Yes, uh, David, thank you so much. Uh, again, this is, this is a topic that, um, you know, I come in not as an expert and I can't wait to hear what, you know, Liz and Howard have to say and, and many others on the call today. Um, I've, I've been involved in end of life care both, both personally and with the systems that I uh, help uh, run. And I can tell you that it's a, such a difficult topic. I've made decisions that I'm embarrassed to say that I have and hopefully we'll talk about that today. But I just can't wait for this discussion. I, I'm, I'm going to learn a lot. So, so happy to be here. Fantastic. There are multiple segments to this case. We'll start off with uh, the first segment, which is about two minutes. Uh, there is closed captioning. Uh, and we'll just listen and learn a little bit. Uh, the, the quick setup is that this particular individual, uh, and we don't share any other information outside of the video, but this particular individual uh, was a teacher. And when we asked his wife if they would uh, allow us to capture this, she said he would, he would want folks to learn from, from this experience. So um, that, that's a quick setup and uh, I'm going to roll the tape. We're also in a safe environment where we're, it's okay to be uh, critical of things, but we also wanna be respectful of the uh, team that was, was caring for this particular individual uh, and um, the, the team was called because uh, they heard there was a patient at the end of life who was having, having agonal respirations and was, uh, and was less responsive. And his, his wife actually called the, the paramedics. So that, that's a quick setup. And then I will, I will now play the video. Dr. Golden. David, can you make it larger? Full screen. You do Let's get a glucometer out, check sugar, please. Okay. So glucometer's going to be right here on Mark's backpack. 
There's a, there's a lot to unpack here. I, I guess I'll throw out to Peter um, and or Howard from an EMS perspective, what, what are the responsibilities of uh, an EMS team when they arrive in a case like this? What, what do they have to do? Uh, what their protocols, this, is, um, this seems to be a bit of a different situation in terms of the end of life care and to be respectful of what the family wants. What, what what is what is essential? What is not essential? What is the the best approach in these kind of situations? Howard, take it away. So first, I want to thank everybody for being here and and wanting to learn about hospice and EMS. I think giving people the care they want isn't a really downer topic. I I really gain a lot of um, of pleasure from it, and and giving people the the care that they want makes me happy. And I hope it makes everybody else here happy too. So thank you for, for joining us on that. Um, we need to do a good assessment of every patient that we make contact with. When we hear the words hospice and comfort measures and patients at end of life, if we hear any of these things, we need to treat it as a speed bump. And I think the crew here did a great job of that. They were very calm, cool, and collected, which is what you wanna see, especially in a case like this that might be emotionally charged. The thing they want to do is to, to do a calm assessment and figure out what's going on and figure out if the patient has done advanced care planning. And in this case, the patient did, as we might see a little later on in the video. Um, the family member may or may not be able to articulate the advanced care planning in the moment. And so we need to do our good detective work and start digging and pulling the thread of, well, which hospice agency do they use? Do they have any paperwork? Meanwhile, we're doing our physical assessment. I'm assessing the pulse. I'm assessing the breathing. I'm assessing the overall appearance. I'll throw it out to the class or the, 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 the viewers right now. Is this patient sick or not sick? Overwhelmingly, this patient is sick. And you know, this patient in everybody's mind should look like he's dying. From there though, we've hit our speed bump and we know he, he is sick. He may be in his decline. Uh, right at the very end of life. He could have several hours left. He could have minutes left. We're not sure. And so our job is to pull the thread and to start to figure out what the patient wanted. Uh, Howard, I, you know, I love how you unpack that. And I think that what struck me most about this video, which I love is you could hear how gentle they are, how slow they're moving. They're, they're, they're being gentle. You could hear them talking in the background. They're not, there's not a lot of excitement. I will tell you that, you know, um, Unfortunately, and can, I'm, I'm talking from my systems here in Florida, and I would love to hear what others say, is that oftentimes we come into these situations not knowing what's going on. 
These patients oftentimes are in hospice care, but unfortunately they don't have the right documentation. And we come in barreling. I mean, people are noticing that there's lights outside. Thankfully, you know, we're not hearing any noises uh, from sirens and so forth, but there's obviously the, you see the lights. Um, and I can't tell you how many phone calls I've gotten over the years, because I, I also have an agency that does interfacility only. And we do a lot of hospice type patients where we come in and I get a call and there's CPR in progress at a facility where it's known to be a hospice patient. And it's, it's, it, it's, it's, uh, it hurts me and it has hurt me. So I wonder to hear from you how, do you, how do you approach, let's say this gentleman, we didn't know that he was a hospice patient or in Florida, you have to have the yellow canary, the canary yellow paper. And I've gotten calls and I said, doc, it's not canary yellow, it's white we're doing CPR. And I, so uh, earlier, and I'll stop after this comment, earlier I said that I, I've made decisions that I've never put down on paper, but I asked my crews to call me and I say to them, if, it's, if the situation looks right, the family is telling you this is a hospice patient or you're in a hospice facility, please call me and we will not perform these measures. So we'd love to hear your input um, on that when the situation is not as clear cut as it is here. But Peter, you're, you're obviously an incredibly attuned and connected medical director. I know you are and uh, the relationship you have with your group. Many paramedics don't in, in various agencies around the country don't have that ability to contact their medical director in a moment's notice perhaps. So what I'm curious from the audience, what protocols exist? What are, what, what, what are your approaches to this kind of situation? We wanna hear from you. I don't know if Rob Lawrence has any thoughts or comments, but um, uh, oftentimes different states have different uh, rules and regulations around this. For example, in Oregon, there is a um, there, there's there's actually end of life um, uh, euthanasia laws that exist. Where, where patients act actually uh, at the end of life are allowed to take medicine to end their life quicker. And, uh, but er every state has different rules. And so I'm just curious, Rob, uh, where, where you're at uh, or perhaps opining what happens in England, uh, thoughts about that? So I'm currently not in a EMS system over here in California, but what I was gonna suggest is that uh, I see that Dr. Miramontes is on and they actually run a hospice system and so, David, what's I mean, Texas is probably a good uh, a good start point to have this discussion. In. Yeah. So, like Peter, we have delegated practice in Texas, which means we don't practice paramedicine; we practice medicine. And so, we have a lot of flexibility in Texas to do these kinds of programs. So, our fire department does have an active hospice protocol. We have. A, I'm going to put it in the chat. That's what I was doing when you guys were talking to me. Um, and that protocol allows us to work collaboratively with our contract hospice companies to provide palliative care. So we do provide morphine, we do provide fentanyl, we do provide uh, Versed, Ativan, Haldol. Um, we manage the patient's symptoms. We actually have an MIH unit, a mobile integrated healthcare unit, that co-responds with the 911 truck if they're a hospice patient that's in our CAD. And so when the MIH medic gets there, they're talking to the fire crew as he's en route, working up a plan of action. And then when he gets there, it's like, 
Okay, fire crew, you're out. I got it. Thanks. I got the patient until the hospice nurse gets here. And we aggressively manage the symptoms to avoid transport, to avoid hospice revocation, to make the patient more comfortable, and to work with the family through the grieving process. So for us, it decreases transports. It keeps people in hospice. And the hospice folks pay us a ton of money to do this. So it's a really, it's a good profit uh, service line for us because we help them to keep the patients in service. So that's where we're, we have a collaborative standing hospice protocol that I'll put in the chat. Um, and we try and work collaboratively. There are times when I actually go out to the scene um, to do basically a conscious sedation for patients that are actively dying who are just absolutely miserable. Um, so we actually get them comfortable and then hand off to hospice once their meds uh, arrive. And in hospice, we use mostly oral meds um, or sub-Q uh, type meds. We don't start IVs. We don't give fluids. We don't do aggressive care. Um, Howard, can you talk real quickly about this whole idea of revoking hospice and what it means when a person decides that they want to die at home and we take them to the hospital and what that finance looks like? Yeah, absolutely. So um, just bringing it real quick uh, back, Matt Hedlund said something great in the chat, which is we, we don't want to punish our patients for not having their paperwork in order if they have articulated wishes and their family's able to articulate it and there's a good story. I think that's that's right on the money. I'm not here to, to enforce paperwork. I'm here, I'm here to give people the care that they want. Um, so I'm going to call my online medical direction and, and make that happen. And for the vast majority of cases that works out. For money, there, there is really a great incentive for hospice agencies to partner with EMS agencies in that the average emergency room bill is three to $5,000, um, pretty much no matter where you go in the country, it runs about three to $5,000. The Medicare hospice benefit, which covers the vast majority, over 95% of hospice patients in this country pays just over $30,000 a year. So you can blow one fifth or one sixth of uh, your yearly budget to, to, for patient care for a three or four hour ER visit where patients aren't getting the care they want anyway. That's a very expensive, I'm not gonna call it a mistake, but a very expensive consequence or an outcome that hospice agencies do not want. My area hospice agency has over a thousand patients in their census at a given time. They're one of the top 1% by size hospice agencies in the country they can absorb many more EMS transports. And so many of them were not aware initially when we began reaching out to them that this was a problem. Smaller hospice agencies, more typical hospice agencies, 10 to 50 people in the census at a given time are gonna feel every one of those transports. Some patients are disenrolled from hospice as a result of being transported to the hospital. There are criteria for that and I'm, I'm actually not very familiar with, with when somebody qualifies and when somebody doesn't. I know hospice will follow up and send providers to the hospital and try and get patients out of the hospital as soon as possible. Um, if that's what the patient wants, if this was a, a breakthrough symptom or some other circumstance. It's also important to remember there are four primary reasons that EMS would be called to the home for a hospice patient. 
uh, worsening symptoms directly related to the hospice diagnosis, fear or uncertainty on the part of the patient or the family, we can make a big difference in these two categories. One of the, the categories that we do not have a ton of power in is another type of medical emergency. So if a patient falls and breaks their hip and they're on hospice, it may be appropriate to transport them to the hospital and hospice is okay with that because it's palliative to maybe pin their hip or do some other procedure that will bring relief to the patient. Hospice is okay with that. So we have to keep in mind that transport may be, may be a good option, not always, but certainly it needs to be in our toolbox. I'd just like to add from, a, a, from an emergency perspective for what you have available, maybe if you're coming from an area that doesn't have great protocols or a great understanding of how to deal with these patients, you can consult the hospital. I get calls all the time from people who are on scene. And I feel like when people walk into these scenarios, there's a couple of things that um, elevate everyone's blood pressure. First, we have a natural instinct to want to do something. And when we get into these situations, it's suddenly like, I don't really know what to do, to do because I'm not starting an IV. I maybe I'm not doing things I'm used to doing. And so I don't know what to do. And um, doing stuff sometimes can cause harm in these situations um, that you would normally do. So that pause and that calmness and kind of assessing the situation, the speed bump um, that Howard mentioned is, is truly important. And then once you've taken that pause, if you really don't know what to do, then consult us. You can call the hospital. I get calls all the time from our paramedics who are in this situation. And the other issue that they'll have is like, legally, what am I allowed to do or not do if the paperwork isn't in order, if they're saying this, but you know, I'm not sure what I'm legally responsible for. You can call us and I can take that legal burden off of you. If you explain what's going on with the patient, then I can say, you know, then absolutely, this is the wife. She would be the natural next akin. She can tell you what the directives of the patient are. And I don't need a piece of paper. And I would respect what she says, you know, is uh, what she wants uh, for that patient based on conversations that she's had, whether or not that actual documentation is in hand. In addition, we can also give you some, you know, tips on like medications you can use or things that you should not do um, or things that, you know, you feel like maybe you would be appropriate, um, but you're not sure. So consult us. I think that's a good, you know, go-to. Most docs can understand the lay of the land from you just describing it and give you a little bit of room to know what you're working with before you make the decision decision to transport or make a decision to do an intervention that ultimately may be in line or not in line with that patient's wishes. So, so Liz, Liz, that, that, that's amazing. And, you know, obviously every, every paramedic would love to have you on the other end of the radio when, when they call the hospital, but unfortunately that's not the case. Um, I, and I, I can tell you that systems like David Miramontes runs, I mean, everyone should work there, right? Because every, you know, the guy figures out everything about everything, right? Unfortunately, I'm not that savvy. Unfortunately, in Broward County, we have over 18 different systems and we have not connected from the municipal 911 agencies into hospice so that if, if my medics go into a home today and the form is not canary yellow or the, or the physician hasn't signed, they're, they're doing stuff. Um, unfortunately, and, and Liz, again, in here in, in, in South Florida, if you call the physician on the radio, they just say, you know what, follow your protocols. And so I've, I've ended up, listen, my dad uh, was in hospice. My dad was septic. And when they came, they actually said, you know what, he's in hospice, but he's not dying. Let's take him to the ER. And he sa they saved two more years of his life. So I, I agree with everything that's being said, but this is a, a, a needle 
It's a fine threading of the needle, figuring out what has to happen, what situation you're dealing with, and then hopefully be working in a system where your medical director, your system, or your ER doctor is on the same page. But I think that we, ha we have to do better. We have to figure out how can EMS solve this problem without having to you know, figure it out one at a time. And I would love to hear the thoughts on that from the group. While we're yeah. waiting uh, for that, why don't I play it? There's the second piece of this, there are a couple of parts. I, the second piece brings up a number of other ethical and other practical questions. So let me just play this. It's just about two minutes while we're pondering Peter's thoughts. And please uh, put some thoughts in chat so we can answer those. Or if you want to speak, please speak as well. Uh, but well, I'm Dave's team that up. I did actually put in the chats, the UK NHS hospice and end of life um, pages. Thank you. Starting to wake up a little? Whatever, 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 whatever the sheet says. Let's not, yeah, just whatever the sheet says. No, no, no. Hey. No, just, just don't worry about it right now when it's critical. It's good, it's good customer service to let the alcohol dry, but when they're not awake, don't worry about it. We're going to check a couple things. Here. I just pressure. Okay. He said that. 82%. Heart rate of 140. 140. 140. Yeah. 140. Yeah. 140. Yeah. 140. And he's still not responding to verbal or anything like that? No, I rubbed him. He didn't respond. Okay. He's not responding. I understand. I know it's hard. So, do you have family that lives here in Woodburn? Rick, can you want to go with us to the hospital with him? Or do you want to not go to the hospital with her? Do you want to have a close with the neighbors? Close friends with the neighbors? No. Which one would you be comfortable if they came over here? Why don't we put an NPA in there? Okay. Well, you know what? They probably wouldn't mind if you called them anything. So he's a DNR with comfort measures. You know, I always say that the most important aspect of being a good provider, whether you're an EMS provider or a physician, is by directional communication, outstanding bi-directional communication, actively listening to the family and the patients, and then being able to articulately explain. And I, I must tell you, I'm, I'm very emotional right now because I'm hearing the paramedic in the background talk to this mother, excuse me, the wife who is extremely distraught. And um, I, I wanna, first, there are two things I wanted to talk about with this next segment. One is, um, what kind of training and what is the approach with frontline workers uh, around engaging with family members who are going through a crisis and, and, and managing? What is the best approach to managing families who are going through this, this trauma? Uh, which I, I just listening to a little bit of the background, I thought this paramedic was really kind and the, the, the approach, but I would love to hear thoughts about that. And then the second thing I wanted to talk about is what 
what were the, the interventions that they were performing here? They were talking about a nasopharyngeal airway. Uh, they obviously put a non-rebreather on. What is, and he was satting 82%. What, it, it, it's uncomfortable to actually see someone setting 82% and not do anything about it. Um, what, what, what's reasonable at this approach? I mean, they were obviously checking a glucometer and teaching at, at the same time, but, um, but let's start first. I, I just wanna get uh, perhaps, uh, you know, Liz or Howard or others in, in the audience, what is, what, is, what is best practice for approaching the family in this kind of situation? How do you approach families? Uh, I, I, I'm a pediatric ER physician. I don't often do this, but what, what is the best approach? What kind of training can we provide uh, for, for paramedics to be managing situations like this? Because it's not easy. Well, David, I, I certainly think that one of the things I would point out is that this uh, experience is probably most difficult for that wife out of everybody in the room. And so I would keep in mind that directing some energy and thoughtfulness to what she's experiencing is important uh, because the patient is, is actively dying and may or may not really be fully conscious or you know aware of what's going on, but she is. And I always tell patients when I engage them in end-of-life care discussions or advanced care planning that a lot of times uh, those moments at the end are most difficult for the family and not necessarily, you know, the patient. Uh, but I also remind them that, you know, I put a positive spin on it that like providing someone a good death, a death where they're, uh, they have comfort and they're in their home and they're next to their loved ones is one of the best things that you can do for them. And so, you know, approaching in this situation, I think some of the things that the paramedics, and I think they're doing a great job in general with the tone and just the speed of everything, I would, you know, kind of given the wife an opportunity to come up and sit next to the patient, hold his hand, be able to engage uh, and reassure her that, you know, he is, he is likely dying, but we're going to, you know, we're going to make him as comfortable as possible in this moment. And we're going to support you through this process. We're going to be with you, you know, during these moments that are going on that are very scary and to just reassure her, it might provide the comfort and confidence that a family member needs to get through these moments. Cause a lot of family members do want to uphold those patients wishes, but when, especially they panic, which is a common reason we've heard that AMS gets called, um, talking them down and kind of re-engaging them in the strength that they need to get through, you know, these difficult uh, moments at the end of life is huge. It's huge, not just for the patient, but for the family. And in the end, they will thank you. Um, so bringing her close, kind of getting, uh, making her aware that, that he could die. And if that happens, that's okay. That we're doing what he wanted and he's at home and he's with you. And we're going to give him whatever we can to make him comfortable for, you know, the next uh, few moments or whatever he has left. You know, what you just said really uh, resonates with me and I really appreciate it. Maybe one of the most important things that has been discussed so far uh, when, when I have patient, when I have children come in who are SIDS babies or sudden death uh, in the earlier uh, stages of life, when uh, I, I teach the residents and fellows, uh, when the baby comes in dead, the most important thing that you're going to do in that entire resuscitation is engage with that mother and that family. And so uh, this idea that you just mentioned that, yes, there's the patient in front of us, but maybe the most important interaction is what that paramedic is, how that paramedic is comforting the, the wife is such a key element of, of that. And thinking about what that wife is going through in this moment and trying to comfort her, even though she's not the patient, is, uh, is, is such an essential teaching point. Howard? 
I would also just point out with this patient in particular that he doesn't appear to be suffering. And so really, really the, the care being given then is, because what, what can we do for this patient? I think we'll talk about that in a little bit, what, what ends up, what they end up doing versus, you know, what they should or should not do, which is, which is a matter of provider preference and family preference. Um, it, is, Howard, it is life. Sorry. Howard, can I just, uh, Miguel had a great question and I, I'm sure everyone's wondering, what are the recommendations for dis deciding the correct level of care when the patient doesn't have any written anything? That is provider judgment, family, the ability of the family to articulate wishes. And, and so in these, these ex sort of extreme moments where someone is actively dying, it is difficult if the family is unable to articulate what the patient wanted to then have a conversation and do advanced care planning in the moment. It's called advanced care planning because you have to do it in advance of the care. If the patient has talked about it before with the family but didn't get around to paperwork and you know I walk in and they say, absolutely did not want CPR, didn't want, didn't want to be messed with, wanted to be put in a position of comfort, kept dry and maintained dignity. Great. I can totally work with that. I'm going to call my online medical control for that order to deescalate care. And I am, I am almost certainly going to get it. Like people should know from a, from an actual legal standpoint, uh, medical doctors are not legally required to provide futile care. And so if you can communicate to us that this is a futile situation, the interventions we're going to do do not change the outcome, um, you can make sure that you're in a safe space, both e ethically and legally, to de-escalate any interventions, regardless of what the family's really saying or the paperwork. It's always helpful though to have the family on board, right, with, with what you're doing. So that's again why talking to them and directing a lot of your attention to them in these situations is important. But it, but but there's this situation where we're at here where this patient was in hospice and the initial plan from my understanding was the patient was to die at home and then there was there was a panic. I mean the wife called uh, EMS and then, then you're in this really difficult, I think you're in a difficult ethical situation. You show up, uh, in some ways, I see Howard shaking his head, but you know, what, what are you to do? I mean, obviously they talked about putting in an NPA, uh, they, they put a non-rebreather on the patient. They've been obviously trying to manage his, his airway and giving him a little jaw thrust or positioning his head in comfort. And then so what do you do? And then Howard actually made a, a, a statement saying this patient doesn't seem uncomfortable. I, I'm just curious. I'm not an adult provider. How, how do you assess comfort? So there are a lot of tools that we can use for that. And I'm actually, I'm going to recommend a book, The Hospice Companion by Perry Fine. I think every EMS agency should have one. It goes into uh, the assessment of patients who are at end of life and it may not be able to express themselves really great tool set. He's not grimacing. He's not posturing. He's not clenching his hands. I can't do a skin assessment. Um, my understanding was that he was a heart failure patient. So the heart rate in the 140s was physiologically appropriate for his end of life presentation. So it's, it's I'm, I'm going to say he probably was not experiencing pain. Um, we can clear airways. We can suction. We can position. We can keep them warm. Um, 
the paperwork that you all saw was an end of life document. It was a, a pulsed form of, of whatever flavor and it was checked with comfort measures only. Do not transport unless uh, comfort measures could not be provided in the home. Section B of, of a pulsed <laughs> form. Yeah, that's um, at the very end, uh, right there, that pink form, it's liftoff lemon colored in the state of Virginia. Every, every state has their own color. The national pulse form is just white paper. Um, so that's, that should be written out. In this case, what I did not hear the family say, and this is about death communication, and there are some efforts to improve death communication for paramedics and EMTs, and it's really important I can't point you towards any, I've sort of learned on the job and that's really unfortunate. There isn't a really good foundational class for paramedics and EMTs, but they need to tell the wife, he's dying. As, as simply as that, he is dying. This is, this is the end of life. That is one of the most powerful things you can say to a family member to prepare them for the inevitability of what is about to happen. In this case, because he doesn't appear to be suffering, it's a really, sometimes people call us because we're in positions of authority and they don't know that how things are supposed to go. And all we can do is tell them, this is okay. This is all right. This is the way that this goes. Because we recognize it. We've seen it. We have, um, we recognize the stages of, of dying um, through our training, through our experience. And really all people need to hear sometimes is this is okay. And we can sit with you and guide you through this process. But, but Howard, how do you, you made that statement again. How do you, what, what, what are you seeing in this case to make you think that this patient is comfortable? Um, he wasn't having particularly noisy respirations. He was breathing, even though it's slow and his respirations may be inadequate. They don't appear to be labored. He's not making lots of noise. He doesn't appear to have a lot of secretions. I, you know, I didn't get a good listen to his lungs. I assume he might have rails. Um, again, that might be difficult to improve because this is this is how he's going to die. Um, the he doesn't. Again, there's no grimace. There's no expression of pain on his face or an expression of concern on his face. He's not posturing. He's in a relaxed posture. His blood pressure and, and pulse are, are appropriate for how he's going to, to approach end of life. Um, and end of life looks different for different diagnoses. Um, people with respiratory problems will have an up and down trajectory all the way to the very end. People with cancer may, may take a very long time to pass away. People with cardiac uh, issues may, may have up and down trajectories. There's really no predicting beyond kind of broad strokes of how somebody is going to die. So Every Howard, Howard, yeah. I, I, wanted, I wanted to ask, that's exactly what I wanted to ask you about because let's say this gentleman is, is, is gonna take, let's say another hour or two hours, mm -hmm. right? And here you have a frontline unit is, is in the home. Let's say you don't have the ability to then pass it off to another unit like uh, David has in San Antonio. What, what happens next here? Is it that you wait for the, you call the hospice, it, you know, if they're a hospice patient, that's a different story. But what if they're not a hospice patient or what if that person can't come for the next two to three hours? What do you recommend here? Yeah, that's, that's pretty much one of those really tough cases. If it's hospice, I'm on the phone with hospice very early 
Um, I'm lucky in that I run, there's usually two paramedics on a given call from, from coming from different places so that we have early paramedic level care. Um, so one paramedic can do an assessment, another can be on the phone. I also advocate very strongly, like make your EMTs strong at assessment. Know, know the basic, have them know the basic assessment so that I can, I can be talking to the family member, looking through paperwork, calling hospice to, to see what the, their timeline would be for bringing a provider out. I have sat with patients who, who then died later um, and took some time to die. Uh, we have the resources where I am to do that. I know not every place is like that. And that's why it is so important for EMS agencies to have partnerships or formal relationships with their hospice agencies. Because when we call, they've got to pick up and they've got to send somebody because we're, we're sort of put into that miserable, injurious place of having to transport somebody just so that they can be monitored and have care because leaving people is going to, is going to give quite a few providers heartburn. I'll just add that, you know, I think it, it, participating in, you know, this kind of uh, interaction or learning about this now should be a trigger for all of you to engage with your own system and see what resources they have and where there's a lack of uh, education and uh, connection with what the hospital protocols are, what the EMS protocols are, and what you would do in this situation. Because the answer really is there's not a great solution if you don't have those resources there and you don't understand what's going on. So, you know, I, I totally acknowledge that not every ER is gonna have me at the other end of the box if you call us and a lot of docs aren't gonna know what to say because we don't even educate ourselves within medical school well on how to do this. So there's a dearth of education on this topic across the board. And a lot of us are uncomfortable with it because we're uncomfortable with our own mortality. When I teach this to students, one of the first things I have them do is fill out their own advanced directive with them and their family. So they understand what it's like to go through that process. But it is something that you know nationally, we just need to do a better job at achieving achieving so that we can have better outcomes. Um, so, you know, a lot of it is language. A lot of it is semantics. I talk about DNR all the time as die naturally and with respect. Uh, it's just a lot of times the approach that you use. Um, I refer people all the time. I did a TEDx talk this last year that talked about advanced care planning and the uh, setting of COVID-19 and why it is so essential right now more than ever. And I get a lot of great feedback from it because I talk to people about what a resuscitation looks like if we were to do CPR on a patient like that. And what patients and families don't understand is they don't know what that looks like. You know what that looks like. You know why you want to avoid it, but the lay person doesn't. And so it's hard for them to make those decisions. So I'm saying all this to just encourage everyone to be proactive now, use this opportunity to say, huh, I don't think I know what I would do in this situation. So what do I need to do to talk to my EMS director, to talk to my hospitals, to talk to, you know, all the educational resource uh, materials that we're giving people so that we can cover these areas that are not well uh, prepared right now to handle patients like this. And, and Liz makes a great point, and all of you are on this call because you care and because you're champions and you're probably educators. All you have to do, because I've done it myself, is call your hospice agency in your local area. They have clinical educators who will be thrilled to come talk to your paramedics and EMTs in a continuing ed class in an hour-long Zoom call just to answer all these questions that you have. We had someone from our local agency come and talk to us, and she wanted to come back every month and do a different topic. She was so excited that we reached out. Um, it's not that hard. Pick up the phone. Let's play another 40 seconds. I don't, we'll probably finish with this one, but there's some more information I wanna 
continue to uh, this discussion. So this is the third part. Let's try MPH. Is that 10 liters or 15? 10. Okay. Yeah, 190. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. 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 What it goes into the discussion of transport versus not transport, if this situation was indeed the case where the original plan was the patient was to pass at home, what goes into the discussion around transport versus not transport? What are the legal responsibilities of the, of the team, assuming the form is filled out correctly? How do you assess the, the, if the form is filled out correctly? Um, anyone wanna take a stab at that? Sure. Um, on a pulsed form, as long as the signatures are filled out correctly, the name of the patient is correct, um, and there are no conflicting orders on the paper. So if it says, uh, do not resuscitate in section A and full treatment in section B, that's a conflicting order. So it needs to say DNR in section A and comfort measures only or limited care in um, section B. Um, and, the discussion- and, and so far in this scene that we've seen so far, do you believe that the team is, is, is a, a, a abiding by that in terms of comfort measures at this point? There's a non-rebreather, there's head positioning, they checked the glucose. Does all that seem relatively reasonable from a from an EMS standpoint? Yeah. So it doesn't seem invasive at this point. The non-rebreather is not really sustainable, and hospice doesn't use them. Um, I've never seen a hospice agency use uh, a non-rebreather because that that's just not something that can be sustained on a patient over any length of time. Mm -hmm. um, it does sound in the background, you could hear the medic talking about the, the form and he wanted comfort measures only. If you, if you do that on some of our, um, if you look at some pulsed forms or MULST or, or post forms, it will also say transport to the hospital only if comfort cannot be maintained. So that's a medical order signed by a doctor and you can, you can honor that. Um, that, that gives you coverage. You are literally following a doctor's instructions on a, on a medical order at that point. That gives you the tool that you need to, to provide the care that you want or that they want to stay at home. There are some other things that can be done for a patient who's exhibiting symptoms of air hunger. If this patient had a care kit at home, um, you can also put a patient in front of a fan to give them the sensation of air flowing over their face. That can be very helpful. Um, you can use a nasal cannula. Um, there, again, there are several medications. If they have secretions, you can use um, like a compazine or another type of medication. You can use roxanol, oral morphine for difficulty breathing um, in the end of life setting. How you set that up with your agency, or if you talk your, uh, the patient's family through providing that, or you're allowed to give that medication, that's sort of between everybody and their medical director. 
I know where I work, I'm not allowed to touch the patient's care kit because there's kind of a, a custody issue that kind of comes up in, the, in that way. But I can talk a patient's family through it. And if I'm on the phone with hospice and they're talking me through that, I can document that very easily and they're getting the care that they, they need. So we are about 10 minutes before we close. Uh, there have been a number of amazing chat comments that have come across. In fact, Chuck said something that really resonated with me. He said, the strongest drug in our kid is you as a professional, competent and compassionate provider. I would hold the wife's hand, look her in the eye and tell her husband is in the early stages of dying and that we will honor both your wishes and allow him to die at home with dignity and we will make him as comfortable and pain-free as possible. Chuck, that was really beautiful what you wrote and kind of resonates with what Howard and uh, Dr. Claiborne have been talking about. Uh, as we're 10 minutes before we close, I wanna open it up to anyone in the uh, learner audience to actually speak and ask a question uh, for our esteemed panelists or for um, uh, Peter or myself or any other comments that you may want to share, um, please, this is a great time to do so. Does anyone want to actually get off mute and, and, and ask a question or make a comment? Go well, ahead. While people are thinking about that, I'll, I'll add a comment. I, I love this quote from Chuck as well. And I think we, we can't see the provider who's interacting with the wife, but in some ways, she's the one that's suffering most of the two of them. And she's uncertain about what to do. She's looking for guidance and guidance is there. The paper is there. I think that Chuck is right, that the, the most important thing that can be done is to hold her hand. And my own practice is to get on her level. So several people have said, sit with the family. And that's right. That, and that means physically sit, like come down. Don't the, the care, care paramedics here are standing up above as if to provide emergency care. I hope, and I would recommend that the, the person assigned to the family member presumably the most senior person in the room is sitting or my practice is to even get a level below on my knee and speak to that person with my arm around them and say, here's what's happening. Let me help you through this. And so our body language um, and our, and our physical positioning is, is very, and, and our touch of the, of the family member, I think is really important in this, in this setting. Mark, I also Mark, think I, Eric Chase said something that was really important because uh, one topic that hasn't been brought up is that death and dying is a very personal and culturally religious sensitive experience. And a lot of times part of the uncomfortable nature of these interactions is because we all come from different backgrounds, religious, um, you know, ethnically, culturally, and you really need to be sensitive to what whatever your patient and their families needs might be at the end of life. And so it is really useful if you say, you know, is there someone like a pastor or a spiritual advisor that you want to call? Cause that is somebody they could reach out to, you know, in the middle of the night or a friend. Um, and you need to be really sensitive, especially if you um, are in a situation where maybe, you know, they're not as trusting of medical professionals coming into the home like this in this situation. I know as an African-American provider, part of the reason I'm successful is just because I'm African-American and I deal with a patient population where they think I'm not trying to kill their relative when I have these conversations, but you should be mindful that if you don't have that race congruency, you can come off as, you know, maybe trying to not do something that's in their best interest. So to protect yourself from that, you just always want to make sure you're extending an invitation to whoever it is that they want for support. 
A number um, of uh, something to talk about here, guys, is that a number of folks, uh, Marvin Wayne and Jay Saul, have put in the chat uh, that there are outside organizations in uh, some within some EMS agencies or um, maybe a hospital affiliated that will come out and do um, crisis. Um, uh, in Arizona, Jace talks about a crisis team in Bellingham up with Marv. He said that, um, but they have uh, people who will come out to unexpected deaths. And then many of us have chaplains in our EMS agencies. And those are also really good resources, not just for your own personnel, but for patients as well. I'm going to ask Marv to unmute his microphone. I love hearing Marv talk. Marv, unmute yourself, my friend. You are the, probably the only person in the world enjoys hearing me talk. Um, very quickly, in the 70s, based on the program in Baltimore, which was the first program, we started figuring out that we had people with unexpected deaths in the field, families, uh, SIDS, and the like. So they, they basically call them support officers. They go through a very special internal training. I just talked to the director of the program. We do have a kind of a simple outline of what we do. And our dispatch center has specific criteria when to call them. So every time we go out on a cardiac arrest call, they get initial heads up. We have two support officers 24-7 available to us, and they come out again. Most of them have a clergy or mental health background with the added special training, but they come out as a non-denominational support person. So um, the Methodist minister could go out to a Jewish family. The, um, the Catholic person could go out to a Methodist family. It is irrespective of any religious orientation. Um, and they're, they've been amazing. And now, we, as I said, we started in the 70s, and I don't know how many thousands of patients that we have helped, or families mostly. Hospice here has a 24-7 response program. Um, they will go out to their patients or do whatever they need to do if they are available. Now, before COVID, we had a significant availability. COVID has reduced our availability somewhat, um, and but they will also give guidance to the EMS providers. They'll say, well, we know Mr. Smith's family because they have electronic records they can quickly access, and this is the plan for them. Uh, please assure the wife that, you know, they're giving best of care. This case is the ultimate in I don't know what to do type case. And a little bit depends, as I think you outlined, we do not do a very good job of training the on-call or online medical control physicians as to what to do with this. This may be the one area that we most need assistance because a lot I, of it depends on who's on what day. And with that, I will shut up. That's great. No, those comments are really appreciated. We just have two or three more minutes. Eric, do you want to give a, a final comment? Uh, for those of you who don't know Eric, he's got a ton of experience. He's an expert at improv and he's teaching EMS um, how to use improvisational skills. But Eric Chase, I, I know you for a long time, my friend. Unmute your microphone and we'd love to hear what you have to say about that. Well, I just wanna say thank you for this presentation and, and death and dying is very near and dear to me. And we've been doing field terminations in Oklahoma since about 2010. So we've had to continuously improve. However, the biggest gap is, is practitioner, uh, both paramedic and physician willingness to to increase their knowledge and training in this field and, and all the differences. But I, I have an experience where I, I did succumb to uh, death, albeit I'm still here, uh, clinical death, and, and two places, one publicly where the fire department and EMS came, and one in the uh, hospital a, a day after I had been cath. 
And you'd be surprised if the hospital you would think would be the, the place where they treated my wife better, where they would single somebody out to be with her. And, and in that case, she was completely alone and isolated in the corner in the fire paramedics. And, and Jeff Goodlow, Dr. Goodlow, does a great job in Oklahoma City with the fire department and, and the, uh, the ambulance. And I, I just appreciate physicians that are on here and uh, clinical managers that are on here that work with their paramedics and their communities to improve this because my wife was uh, you know, single-handedly taken care of and felt to be um, not alone. And uh, in that experience, and I, I apologize for my emotions, that, that was the last thing that I would ever wanted to have when I told her that we needed to call 911 because I thought I was gonna die and that she was actually being taken care of by, by a paramedic firefighter and the crew was doing the pit crew uh, with me and uh, she felt respected and cared for. And they told her what was going on and they let me be right there. Or they let her be right there and present. And I think those are keys. She didn't have questions and doubts as to their, their efficacy of care, their care for me as a patient. And I think those are just things that are really important as we go forward. And I'm thankful to be able to share a little bit. Thank you so much. That actually uh, is an incredibly fitting end to this discussion. And uh, appreciate that it kind of gets back to where I am when, when I'm with learners, all kind of learners is the core of medicine is bi-directional communication and communicating with, uh, in this case, family members is a, a very key takeaway point. And I will turn it over to Hillary to wrap up uh, any kind of housekeeping issues. And I just want to say for Peter and for Mark, uh, we're incredibly honored to have had Liz and Howard here today uh, you, you, you are esteemed and honored panelists. I appreciate the gravity and the seriousness of this discussion today. Today, we've had like a hundred comments on the on the chat, and uh, Eric and Wayne and David and others who participated. This is what is meaningful to me. It's why Mark and Peter and I and Hillary and James and we all put and Amy, we all put this together because we want to have these kind of moments. So, Hillary, I turn it over to you. David, just one last question. Can you quickly let us know the outcome of the patient that we watched this video for? Yes, he passed within an hour of, of he was transported and he passed comfortably with his wife at the bedside in, in, the, in the hospital, which is what she wanted uh, at, at the end, so. Wonderful. Everyone, um, I'll echo David's comments and just tell you that um, you being here means that you care that this topic is important to you and that you need to be the champion for your own agency, for patients like Eric, for patients like this. And by being here, by sharing these videos, by going to our YouTube channel and watching this video and using it in your classroom or watching it in your firehouse, um, this will bring so much comfort and so much more confidence uh, that you can see in Howard when he talks. I want to be like Howard, not just his hair, but um, Howard would be an incredible companion and partner to be next to with the fact that he has spent years working on this important topic and wouldn't we all like to be that savvy. So thank you, Liz, for being here. Thank you, Howard, for being here. And everyone have an incredible afternoon and a very safe and hopefully uh, uneventful Labor Day weekend. Thanks, everyone.